0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Continuing in our series this morning uh, through the book of Revelation. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me all the way to the back of your Bibles, the very last book, uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. If you've been tracking with us through the series, you know that week one uh, we talked about what type of book Revelation is. Uh, it's very. It can be a very confusing book. It can even be a dangerous book. But in order to engage in the book of Revelation, we have to start by asking what type of book it is. What genre are we reading? And this is uh, a, the easiest way I can sum up our conclusion from week one. Uh, Revelation is a letter uh, to real people in real churches in the first century. It's a prophecy. Uh, challenging and encouraging God's people in their trials, and it's apocalyptic literature, which is an ancient genre that used symbolic language to open up the reader to divine transcendence, which is a fancy way of saying that apocalyptic literature uh, pulls back the curtain of our reality, revealing the deeper spiritual reality which sits behind present and future circumstances. Through apocalyptic literature, if it's inspired by the Spirit, readers understand something about their current world that they didn't understand before, and their current worlds, their trials and circumstances, are all placed in light of the final outcome of history which is the new heavens and the new earth. So these seven churches to which Revelation is addressed, uh, lived under the rule of the Roman Empire and the intense propaganda that kept that empire running. Uh, Caesar claimed to be the divine ruler of the world, and he ruled through absolute military and economic power. Uh, And it's in the midst of that world that John has written a letter encouraging his readers to remain faithful to God and to worship him alone in the midst of a world where worship of the emperor and the Roman gods was being imposed upon them. Last week, we looked at the individual messages that Jesus gave to each of these churches. Some of these churches were compromising. Some of these churches had become apathetic Some of these churches had bought into the Roman ideals, and others among them were resisting, but they were facing persecution as a result. And so John receives a message for each church, and this is what we read next. This is chapter 4, verse 1. John says, after this, or after receiving the seven messages, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had, heard, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold spirit of God, the fullness of the spirit. Also, in front of the throne, the, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings." Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever ever. And ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Before we continue, I'm just going to say a quick prayer. Jesus, We um, thank you for the beauty of the scriptures that you've given us, Uh, and and as John had this incredible glimpse behind the curtain of our reality, as he saw uh, you in the heavenly realms as you are, I pray that we too would have that privilege, not in the same uh, sense that John did, but God, in our hearts through faith, would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts in the words of Paul. Would you you open us up to experiencing you as you really are as we continue? In Jesus' name, amen. After the seven messages to the seven churches, we come to the centering vision of Revelation. The first century church is struggling Under pressure to conform. They are forced to answer the question on a daily basis who is the ruler of this world? And who is worthy of worship? And as the curtain of reality is pulled back, John sees something stunning he sees god himself on the throne he alone is the creator god he alone is worthy of worship his vision of god escapes words god's appearance is beyond anything that john can describe and surrounding the throne there are 24 smaller thrones with 24 Elders, And remember, if you were with us from week one, uh, we talked about the fact that in apocalyptic literature, things are highly symbolic. And so um, it uses things like colors and numbers in ways that are unique to this genre, that don't always make sense uh, to us. So in apocalyptic literature, uh, whenever you see 12 or its multiples... 24, 144, it is symbolic, it is representative of the people of God. So, there were 12 sons of Jacob in the Old Testament who become the 12 tribes of Israel, for those of you who know that story. Uh, And in the New Testament, Jesus chooses 12 uh, disciples to follow him and begin his kingdom work In the world. And so, 24 thrones around the throne of God is representative of the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, worshiping as one around the throne. They've come together to worship their Creator. Likewise, the four creatures surrounding the throne are representative of creation itself. Uh, and they sound really crazy, and they're covered in eyes, which is weird. Uh, but, oh, and each one has a different appearance, which is, also strikes us as weird. One looks like a lion and an ox and a person and an eagle. Uh, but the number four in apocalyptic literature uh, is symbolic of universality, uh, especially as it applies to creation. So, you can trace that number through the book and in other apocalyptic pieces of literature. And and this is what it's symbolic of. And so, you have these creatures worshiping God that are symbolic of creation. And just in case you aren't Jewish, or you're not familiar with this genre, or or you missed that symbolism in the 4 and the 24. Uh, You can look at the words that they use to worship God to make the same connection. They worship God saying this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, this phrase, who was and is and is to come, is a direct reference to God's self-disclosure or God's revealing of himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, all the way back near the beginning of the Bible. Uh, For those who know the story, God reveals himself to Moses and says that his name or his nature is I am. And and, and this phrase is is really difficult to translate into English because it kind of carries multiple meanings all at the same time. So I am means I am who I am or I will be who I will be or I have always been who I have always been. All, All of that is embedded in the very name that God gives to Moses. And the significance is this. God is eternal and uncreated. He has always been. He will always be. Everything else is created... And owes its existence to its creator. And and thus, God becomes worthy of worship purely on the basis that he is the creator. In fact, the elders in, in the next paragraph lay down their crowns and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will, they were created and have their being. God created all things. God sustains all things actively in the moment, in this moment. He didn't have to create us, He doesn't have to sustain us, but He does and so all of creation is grace from God every breath if you aren't sure where to start in your worship of God might i suggest that you start here by worshiping God as cre- as the one who created Us created you, sustains you actively. Every breath is grace from Him. But it gets even better. Uh, Let's continue. If you have your Bibles open, uh, picking up in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. This is what it says. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, much of the significance of this is lost on us. In large part because we aren't Jewish and we aren't steeped in the Old Testament like many of the original readers of Revelation. Uh, The book of Revelation is 404 verses and by most estimates those 404 verses reference the Old Testament 518 times. That is more than one reference per verse, referencing back to the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is a stunning climax and conclusion to the Bible, and it's built uh, not just off of symbolic imagery but almost exclusively off of Old Testament symbolic imagery. Why does Revelation become so confusing to us? Why doesn't it make sense to us when we just pick it up and start reading? Well, for starters, it's written in a genre that we don't have. And it's written to an audience that's not us. But to add another complicating layer, it's built off the Old Testament. And to be honest, Christians are not very familiar with the Old Testament. We don't read it very much. We don't study it very much. We don't understand its, its imagery. Every image in the book of Revelation, every paragraph is building off of Old Testament images and prophecy that we don't have a framework for. It's there, it's in your Bible. We, we, we just don't engage with it. It's it's a bit lost on us. So, to go back to this vision, uh, God's on his throne. He's the creator God. Everything else is creation that owes its existence to God. They're worshiping God on that basis. And then, In God's right hand, there's a scroll sealed with seven seals. And there's lots of debate about the scroll. What is this scroll? Why is it so significant? Uh, Some say, uh, call it the scroll of history. Others point out that the Old Testament prophets uh, talk about this scroll as the message of the prophets concerning how God's kingdom will come in full to the earth. So, if you go back into the Old Testament and you read the book of Daniel, uh, he talks about the end times and he talks about the sealed scroll. And, and it seems to be the same sealed scroll that's appearing again. Uh, But either interpretation is going to land you in a similar place. Um, You can say it either way. Hey, who is Lord over history? And who is able to unlock the means by which God's kingdom will come in full to the earth? This is what John says next. He says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Or, in other words, who can bring God's kingdom in full to the earth? Who can be Lord over history? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, uh, the uh, lion of the tribe of Judah, or the root of David that you see referenced here at the bottom, these are both references to the Old Testament, and they're Old Testament images of the Messiah who was to come. And these two images, more than most, if you go back into the Old Testament and you look them up, they seemed to paint the Messiah as a military Messiah, as one who would come and conquer the enemies of Israel to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. And and, and the Jewish people, the Israelites, they loved these images because for for centuries, hundreds of years, they were being kicked around by one pagan empire after the next. And so they were longing, thirsting, they were hungry, hungry, for a military Messiah who would come as uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, as the root of David, to defeat their enemies on the battlefield and then usher in the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, So John hears this announcement about the lion of Judah and the root of David. You have to imagine this. He hears this announcement. Oh, you can go back one. He hears this announcement about the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He is able to bring the kingdom of God to earth in its fullness. So he hears this announcement, and then he spins around to see this military hero, to see... This lion of Judah, this root of David. But what he sees when he spins around is very different than what he heard. Verse 6, he turns around. Then I saw a what? A lamb. Looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp they were holding and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain And the elders fell down and worshiped. Jesus, the root of David, the lion of Judah, is actually the lamb who has been slain. And it's by that authority that he can take the scroll and he can open its seals. What makes Jesus Lord over history? What gives him uh, the divine authority to open the scroll, bringing the fullness of God's kingdom to the earth? What gives him that, that authority, that power, is not that he is a military Messiah who has conquered his enemies by force. It's that Jesus is the Passover lamb who died for our sin and rose again from the dead. He he has conquered his enemies through faithful witness and sacrificial death. And, And it's his status as the slain lamb, as the one who overcame death, that gives him the authority over history. He alone has the divine authority to bring God's kingdom to the earth, to bring the story of creation to its full and final and fitting conclusion. And if you're Jewish, all of this is shocking. All of the Old Testament scriptures are being fulfilled in Jesus and his sacrificial death and resurrection, and he is God. Chapter 4, which we just read, unveils the creator God on the throne, being worshipped as the creator But chapter 5 takes a shocking turn in that the creator God on the throne is also the lamb who was slain. The lamb is on the same throne in the center of the universe, receiving the same worship that is due to God alone. Jesus is God, and the creator God has come in the person of Jesus. The Lion of Judah has overcome his enemies through his sacrificial death on the cross, and now he is the center of history. He is the means by which God's kingdom will come. And this vision is the center of the entire book of Revelation. Everything in the opening chapters that we've studied already, everything that follows chapters 4 and 5 will only make sense in light of this vision, in light of God as creator, as the lamb who was slain, ruling on a throne from the center of Of the universe. Jesus is that Lamb, the faithful witness who overcame evil by the shedding of his own blood. This is the means by which God's kingdom was inaugurated or started on the earth. And the one who began this good work will be faithful to complete it. When we think of Revelation, some of the top words that come to, that come to mind when people are, are polled or surveyed are 666, the antichrist or the beast. But the three most important books, or sorry, the three most important words in the book of Revelation are witness, throne and lamb. This is the center this is the heart of the book everything that plays out after this moment only makes sense if you grasp the significance of the lamb on the throne Jesus has given many titles from start to finish through revelation but the most common title he's given in the entire book is simply the lamb And this lamb who sacrificed himself for us now reigns on the throne with God. He is the faithful witness who conquered and now calls us to do the same. These images permeate the book and make sense of everything else, but it all starts here with God on the throne and the Lamb who will bring all of human history to its full and fitting conclusion. And because the curtain is pulled back, because we get to see this lamb on the throne in the center of the universe, in the center of history, all false ideologies and false empires are exposed for the sham that they are. They are exposed as being idolatrous and evil. If the lamb is on the throne of heaven, it means that Caesar Is not. And that all his claims and his vast empire are built on lies and propaganda. If the Lamb is on the throne, then the way to conquest is not through military violence but through faithful witness and self-sacrifice. If the Lamb is really on the throne, then evil can and must be done away with. And all evil, in every time, in every place, in every culture, has set itself up in rebellion against the Lamb and His kingdom. And the inevitable clash of kingdoms is on the horizon. There can only be one king. There can only be one true center of the universe. There is only one who is worthy of worship. And as the curtain is pulled back, we see him there in the center of the universe. And, and so the challenge of Revelation, as John sees behind the scenes and into heaven, is, this, is a call for God's people to center their lives around that same throne. Many of you have probably heard the concept that your life is centered around something, that that something sits on the throne of your life, that that there's this thing that you give the bulk of your time and energy and attention and focus and adoration. Everybody, every human being centers themselves around something. And, and, And that thing that's at the center That's what you worship in biblical language. Who or what sits at the center of your heart, the thing that everything else in your life is ordered around? Is it a career, a hobby, a spouse? Is it you? that thing that sits in the center of your life, that's what you worship. And as John sees into heaven, he sees the true center of the universe. He sees the lamb on the throne. And and if that's true, then the Roman Empire, with all of its power, with all of its beauty, is actually centered around the wrong thing. It's actually set itself up in opposition to the kingdom of God and the true Lord of history. But what's true of the Roman Empire is true of all empires. And what's true of all empires is true of me. We each ground ourselves in some version of reality, and some are much truer and much more accurate than others. My life is centered around something, and as the curtain is pulled back, it's not just a critique of the Roman Empire or a critique of all empires. It is a critique of me. The desires of my heart are exposed. Even this week as I've been studying these verses, I've been convicted of the ways in which I've yet to fully center my life around the Lamb who sits on the throne. And I have the advantage of having to wrestle with this for a week before I get up here. And so throughout the week, I I kept encountering these things, these pieces of my life that, that didn't make sense. I kept finding these things and then just getting in this practice of holding them up against this reality of the lamb on the throne. I have a tendency to be an anxious person. I have a tendency toward selfishness and self-worship. I have a tendency toward fears of what could or might go wrong. But with any of those things, I, I, I often catch myself fe- feeling fearful about something, feeling anxious, and, and on my best days, I, I just simply lift that up and say, does this make sense if the lamb is on the throne? Does my anxiety make sense if the lamb is actually on the throne? Does my fear make any sense if the lamb is actually on the throne? Does my fear of what other people think, does, does my fear of witnessing to people about Jesus and his kingdom. Does any of that actually make sense? Does the way I spend my money, does that make sense? If the lamb is on the throne? In many cases, no. It it doesn't. So, So this centering vision of the book of Revelation is a call for all of God's people to come back or recenter our lives around him. We are called to live throne-centered lives that are permeated by the reality of the lamb who was slain. And so as we end this morning... I want to leave us with a really simple question. The worship team can come back up. I'm, I'm done. Not in like, I, I, know I didn't quit. But I'm, I'll be here next week or something. I'm done talking. You can rejoice in that too. This is the question. Is my life centered around the lamb on the throne? This is what I was wrestling with this week. My anxiety, my fear, my finances, my worship. What's in the center of your life that then everything else spirals out from and gets ordered around? One thing is going to inform everything else. Whatever's in the center is going to permeate its way out to the edges. And so as we end, um, you can go ahead and, and clear off your laps if you have your Bible open. Um, we're just going to take a few moments here and just listen and allow God to speak to us uh, and allow Him to do some simple conviction like He's been doing with me all week in the places where I'm off, in the places where I'm not centered around Him. And so uh, as we encounter those things, and we're human beings, so we have those things, as we encounter as the spirit convicts as god nudges we we do this this practice this art of repentance and and, and repentance is turning away from something that's not god and turning back towards god it, it's it's a realigning of our lives with his of our will with his of our heart with the true heart of love behind the universe. Uh, let's come back. Let's take a moment, a couple minutes, to recenter ourselves around the God of the universe. I'll pray. Jesus, uh, we thank you for uh, this revelation of you. We thank you for taking John by the hands, like a little child, and just leading him into this throne room, into this stunning place. God, as we see into the heart behind reality, we see the Lamb who was slain, the self-giving, sacrificial God of love, and we see every created being representing creation, representing the people of God, hundreds of millions of angels, if we can imagine that, surrounding the throne. And Lord, when they see you, their most natural response just from the core of their being is to worship, is to stand in awe, is to bask in the mystery, is to, is to shout praises, is, is to fall to their knees, it's oh, in your presence. And though we cannot see you, As John did, we have these words, we we know by faith, we see by faith and not by sight that the lamb sits on the throne at the center of the universe. The same one who walks among us, who's here in this room by the power of the Spirit. And So we invite you, Jesus, God, Creator, Holy Spirit, Would you speak to us now? Would you bring gentle conviction where there needs to be conviction? Would we not leave this place without hearing the call to recenter? Taking our our heart, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's the call. So would you come now, Jesus? Would you... Uh, Phil, would you convict? Would you lift up the downtrodden, the brokenhearted? I pray for some of the people who walked in carrying anxiety um, that's completely baseless, needless, perhaps rooted in in an off-center. Jesus, call call them back. Call us home. I pray for the breaking of anxiety. I pray for the breaking of fatigue. a fresh wave of your presence of, oh God, all of those hundreds of millions of creatures are just energized by you, brought to life, strengthened. That's what happens when when we worship the right thing. God, would you take us by the hand like you took John and lead us into the place of life. In Jesus' name, Amen.